Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 229, The Battle of Eddington. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. You can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for only about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Simon, Stephanie, and Caitlin for signing up already. Four months is a long time. It might not seem like it, and in many ways, four months can pass in a blink of an eye. But four months is around 120 days. It's more than a full season. In four months, the harshness of winter can be replaced by the bright warmth of spring. Four months is a long time, especially when you're living in a swamp, and even more so when you're leading a guerrilla war. For Alfred, each day on Athelney would have been marked with life or death decisions. Missions being sent out, new warriors being recruited, supplies being liberated from Guthrum. From their base of operations in Somerset, every day would have brought new challenges. And Athelney itself would have created its own workload. No one knew how long this would take. No one knew how long they might have to live on this shrubby little island amidst the marsh and the filth. So in addition to raiding, recruiting, and assault missions, there was also the issue of construction. Building rough-hewn homes to protect the little band and their growing recruits from the elements. They'd also be augmenting the earthen ramparts left behind by the ancients who once inhabited this odd bit of land. Perhaps they were even shoring up the causeways that allowed quick access to and from eastern Somerset. The work for Alfred's band would have been unceasing, and I imagine that in many ways, time would have both raced by as well as dragged on, because that's how time seems to work in moments of crisis, where each day seems to race with frightening speed, but at the same time, it feels like it's been forever since things were normal and stable. That after four months, Alfred and his band would have looked up and realized that suddenly, It was Easter. And to their surprise, they had something worth celebrating. Construction of their base of operations was complete. Also, the attacks on Guthrum were going really well. Instead of staring at their own destruction, which had been the case four months earlier, things were turning around. Their attacks were having the intended effect. Other eldermen, like Otta of Devon, were leading their own resistance against the Northmen. And the Anglo-Saxons weren't just fighting, they were winning. They were defeating entire armies of Northmen and seizing their sacred war banners. A lot had changed since Twelfth Night, and Alfred and Athelnoth must have been pleased about that. But of course, they still had work to do. So more missions were sent out. The daily attacks continued. They needed to make it clear to Guthrum and to anyone who thought about supporting him that they would find no safe harbor in Somerset. If the Northmen came into the marshes, thanks to Alfred's defenses, they would find their doom. And if they stayed on the outer reaches, Alfred's men would find them there, too. Every day that passed, new word would come to Guthrum of an attack, or a raid, or of arson or sabotage. These rebels were everywhere. 
and nowhere. It's a powerful recruitment tool, as was the victory that Ada of Devon enjoyed. And you can be relatively certain that every effort was being made to ensure that the story of Ada was being spread far and wide, as well as the stories of Alfred leading ambushes, raids, and acting as a spy. All of this made the Danes look like fools. And the strategy here, as is the case with most guerrilla wars, wasn't just to bring a bunch of recruits to a single unit and expand its size. Instead, the idea was to gain more recruits in order to create additional columns, who would then carry out their own missions. And then those columns would then inspire others to join, who could then form their own columns, and so on and so forth. So Alfred needed more eldermen like Ada to start their own rebellions. And the reason for this is simple. Even as Alfred was gaining supporters, he didn't have the numbers necessary for a conventional fight. So he needed to continue his irregular tactics, which meant that he needed the numbers of his units to remain small, at least for the time being. So as the weeks passed after Easter, the attacks continued. And based upon the record, it seems pretty obvious that his legend was growing, as was his army. But the tactics would have stayed pretty much the same. They'd be striking in small numbers. They'd run when resistance was encountered. And they would cause as much problems for the Northmen as possible, as often as possible. And they would do so visibly. Only now, there were a bunch of columns who were doing the exact same thing. And so after Easter, seven more weeks of these attacks took place. 49 days of daily strikes, of recruitment and sabotage. And then, Alfred realized something. He was no longer fighting alone without support. Word had reached him of support from a whole variety of nobles throughout his kingdom. And his actions against Guthrum had brought him a great deal of renown and respect throughout the region. So he was no longer fighting with a lone band of rebels. Nor was it just him with some of the forces of Somerset. Instead, Hampshire and Wiltshire were answering the call as well. Alfred was now at the head of an army. It just hadn't formed up yet. So the word was sent out. For the first time, he would tell people when and where he would be. And if Guthrum intercepted those messages, good. That would just mean that he wouldn't have to go looking for him. And there was a stone near the Wiltshire Downs. It was known to most of the nobles in the area as it commemorated Alfred's grandfather, King Egbert. It was called Egbert's Stone. And Alfred put out the word to his nobles, ordering them to uphold their oaths and join him there in a direct fight against the occupying Danes. Now, King Guthrum was not a fool, and the Danes had shown that they used the formation of hegemonies to dominate regions in the past. So much like he commanded influence over Mercia through essentially land bribes to local noblemen, I suspect that Guthrum was working overtime to cultivate alliances through those same kinds of bribes, and probably also tried to play rival nobles against one another. It really was a winning strategy under many circumstances, but Alfred's guerrilla campaign would have severely undercut the efficacy of that tactic. A little over five months ago, had Alfred tried this, the nobles of Wiltshire, Hampshire, and Somerset probably would have faced this sort of question. 
Do I risk it all by supporting a sickly athling with a history of losing battles in his war against the Vikings? Or do I accept whatever bribes are being offered to me by the victorious Viking King Guthrum and just stay home and count my money? It was an easy question. At least it was five months ago. But it wasn't that cut and dry anymore. After five months of war, that question had become... Do I incur the wrath of this rebel athling and risk having my halls burned and land seized for failing to answer his call? Or do I stay home and trust in Guthrum's ability to defeat Alfred, which he'd been failing to do for months despite having far superior numbers? Posed with this question, Alfred was gambling that the nobles of Wessex would take the safest bet and show up. And he was right. In May of 878, seven weeks after Easter, the rebel bands decamped, donned their weapons and armor, and began their march to Egbert's stone. Meanwhile, all throughout Somerset, Wiltshire, and Hampshire, there were eldermen who raised their forces and began their march to the stone. And it wasn't just the eldermen. The Reeves and the Thanes also raised their forces and began to march. We know this because the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle tells us that the Ferds were raised. And that means that any individual charged with levying and leading the general forces of those three shires had also remained loyal to Alfred and were answering his call. And additionally, it means that Alfred had sufficient support throughout the region that the officers retained their authority because the peasants mustered when they were asked. That's not a minor thing. At any point... This whole thing could have broken down, and entire columns of the army could have vanished because someone in power, or even just a group of peasants, decided they didn't want to fight for Alfred. But from top to bottom, the people of Somerset, Wiltshire, and Hampshire were showing that they were willing to fight and die to put Alfred back on the throne. And one by one, the bands reached the stone. It would have started small perhaps only a couple dozen as the first unit or two arrived. I wonder if those first groups hid in the surrounding countryside, wary to arrive first, just in case they were the only ones there, and thus an easy target for an enraged Viking army. But more showed. And then more. And before long, there was a steady stream of spears and soldiers flooding the field. We don't have precise numbers for Alfred's army, but scholars suspect that it would have been perhaps a few thousand strong. And for the time, it would have been an enormous army, especially considering where he had come from and how up until that point, Alfred's forces had been operating like a small gang of bandits in the wild. The warbands were arriving now in large numbers. And then they became something more than warbands. They were firds, three in total, And Alfred may have been watching this from a distance, watching and seeing how many answered the call, and keeping his presence secret until he was sure he had enough supporters to make his appearance safe. And ever the consummate performer, Alfred carefully timed his arrival to have the maximum impact upon the forces. Maybe look at this like a party. If you're the type of person who likes to make a splash, if you like to make an arrival at a scene, especially at your own party, it's no good being the first to arrive at the club. They'll just be standing around looking awkward, waiting for people to show up. No, you want to arrive a bit after everyone else, 
and then make your big entrance. And that's what Alfred did. And it had the intended effect. The Chronicle tells us of how Alfred's combined birds rejoiced to see him. Asser takes it a little bit farther and tells us that the army reacted to Alfred's arrival, quote, as if one was restored to life after suffering such great tribulations. This totally worked. And it seems to me that Asser was trying to paint a picture of Alfred being kind of like part Christ and part King Arthur, as someone who defeated death and then returned to defend the kingdom in her time of greatest need. But Asser's flourishing aside, the fact remains that even the Chronicle reports that the forces rejoiced upon Alfred's arrival. And why wouldn't they? They had all marched many miles and were risking life and limb for this man. They clearly believed in him and what he represented. When Alfred feasted in his halls at Chippenham, he was merely King Alfred, the young sickly king of Athelwolf with a middling record in the field. But things had changed in the intervening five months. The man who arrived at Egbert Stone was no longer king. He had become something more. He was Alfred the Great. And his army was growing. Still, more warbands were arriving. And so the order was sent out that they were to encamp at the stone for the night. However, it seems that it didn't take long for Alfred's scouts to bring him word of Guthrum's position. The usurper Viking king had encamped around an old hill fort at Bratton. It was a clever location because it blocked Alfred's approach to the now symbolically potent royal burr of Chippenham. And the fact that the Danes had already claimed a strategic location also let Alfred know that Guthrum knew the Ferd was called. It was only a matter of time before they'd march upon the stone. And while Alfred was ready for a fight, that's why they came here. The stone wasn't the best location for a battle. So as dawn broke on the next day, Alfred ordered his men to break camp. Any stragglers who were delayed by terrain, weather, or unforeseen circumstances would just have to try to catch up. To wait any longer would place his army at risk. So they marched north and made their way towards a place called Iglay, which is thought to have been Eilie Oak, present-day Eastleigh Wood in Sutton Venny. It was well known to him and to his nobles, as it was the meeting place for the hundreds of Warminster. And only a little way farther to the north was Warminster itself, an important royal possession. But Alfred stopped short, and he stayed in the wood. Camping here made a great deal of sense. By occupying the wood, Alfred's army had as much secrecy as they could hope for, as the forests were dense enough that passing patrols might fail to notice that they contained not hundreds, but thousands of West Saxon warriors. Even better, the nearby river Wiley provided his army with fresh water, a necessity for any large mobile force during this era. And it also provided a secure flank, from which they could be relatively certain that they wouldn't be attacked. But somewhere out there was Guthrum. Perhaps he still was in his hill fort. Or maybe he was just over the river. Maybe he was leading his forces through the woods the great army of Wessex probably didn't know for sure. But for the second night in a row, they were told that there would be no fight. 
Instead, once again, they would encamp. For Alfred's rebels, those who had become accustomed to the guerrilla lifestyle, this was probably just another day at the office. But for the Ferd that was recently raised, and who were all fired up at the sight of Alfred, all of this hurry-up-and-wait stuff must have worn on them. Spending time waiting would mean that they'd have plenty of time to grouse, and also plenty of time to worry about a fight that was coming. I imagine that sections of the camp would have been infected with a brutal mix of boredom and anxiety, but there was nothing to be done for it. So they spent one more night in the wilds, with Guthrum only a handful of miles away. As dawn broke on the third day, it would have become clear that their time had come. The mood of the camp would have changed. And across the way was Guthrum, and he was no fool. This young rebel had been causing him no end of problems with just a mere handful of followers. And if the reports were to be believed, he now had multiple ferds under his control. There was no telling how much damage Alfred could cause with a force like that. And so, by holding Bratton, Guthrum was hoping to tip the scales in his favor. See, Bratton was a tough nut to crack. It was guarded on three sides by a steep embankment and it was surrounded on all sides with deep ditches cut into the chalk long ago by the ancient Britons. Much like Alfred had done on Athelney, Guthrum was using the terrain and the ancient fortifications to their fullest extent. And scouts would have let Alfred know this. But he couldn't let this moment pass. So Alfred and his nobles issued their commands. The great army crossed the River Wiley, and they marched up Battlesbury Hill, driving back any Danish defensive forces that they found there. And now, only a handful of miles stood between Alfred and his crown. For the next hour or so, Alfred and his men marched along the ridge, relentlessly advancing upon the Danes, until, at last, Bratton and the nearby village of Eddington came into view. And suddenly... Guthrum would have realized just how big Alfred's army was. But Guthrum wasn't in any position to back down either. So he arranged his forces, and they stood in front of the camp in a mass of shields, spears, axes, and swords. The Danes were ready, and they were eager to finally face this bandit in open combat. For far too long, they had suffered his night assaults and his ambushes but no longer. This would finally be settled once and for all, and the Danes would at last finish what they should have done in Chippenham and kill him. Across the field, Alfred arranged his forces, and they marched towards the Danes. Once they were around a hundred yards from them, the warbands bunched up, they raised their shields into a shield wall, and they advanced. I'll let Alfred, via his biographer Asser, describe what came next. Quote, fighting fiercely with a dense shield wall against the whole pagan army and persevering resolutely for a long time, at length he gained the victory through God's will. He overthrew the pagans with a very great slaughter and chased those who fled as far as the stronghold, hacking them down, end quote. So Alfred and his forces formed a shield wall and confronted Guthrum's shield wall. And in classic Anglo-Saxon era fighting, the battle would have continued for quite some time in a sort of shoving match punctuated by the occasional stabbing. But after some time, 
the Danish shield wall began to weaken. And once it broke, the Danes turned and ran. Their defenses were utterly shattered, and at that point, it was an easy matter for the West Saxons to slash and hack at the fleeing Danes. A great deal of Guthrum's army found their end on the hillside of Bratton, but not all of them, and not Guthrum. He and the remnants of his forces were running. Hard. Suddenly, the cardio that was so important to Alfred's rebel army had become a key necessity for Guthrum. They were being butchered, and they needed to get out while they still could. They needed to find somewhere safe and to regroup. They needed a burr that could offer some sort of defense. And as it happened, there was one within 16 miles of them. It would be a hard run, but they could make it. And that's how, in one of the great ironies of this war, Guthrum found himself running back to the very place in which he had originally won this kingdom. He and the bloodied and shattered Viking forces ran headlong to the royal burr of Chippenham and slammed the gate shut behind them. But Alfred and his forces weren't far behind. And their blood was up. Any Danes that fell behind were killed. And as the West Saxons approached, any men who were outside of the Burr were immediately killed by the enraged army. It's not clear whether these unnamed men were Danes, Danish collaborators, or merely unlucky locals. It didn't matter. Alfred and his men weren't taking any chances this time. Every time that they let their guard down with Guthrum, every time that they assumed that he would act within Anglo-Saxon norms, they were punished for it. So this time, they were going to be sure. This time, they weren't going to give him any chance to set a trap or to make an escape. With the local area cleared, Alfred then seized all of the horses and cattle and took them away. He learned from the disaster at Wareham. There would be no late night escape on horseback this time. This time, there would be no surprises. And then... Alfred, with his great host of at least several thousand men, laid siege to Chippenham. And Guthrum was unprepared for this siege. Moreover, he didn't have the men to break it. So as the days dragged on, it became clear that if it continued, they would all starve. Or they would be slaughtered within the walls should Alfred lose his patience and assault. So, in a strange parallel to the Christmas feast of 877, which lasted 12 nights and ended with Alfred losing his kingdom, the siege of 878 lasted a fortnight before Guthrum reached a point where his only option was to abandon any hope of continuing to rule Wessex and to beg for peace. But he also knew that he had completely overplayed his hand. His entire history with Alfred had been marked by treachery. He was in no place to ask Alfred to give him the benefit of the doubt. So, Guthrum sent a messenger to tell Alfred that he would offer the West Saxon all the hostages that he required, and he would seek none for himself. And he promised that in exchange for this, he would leave the kingdom immediately, if Alfred agreed to his terms. Alfred didn't agree, though he was reportedly surprised by Guthrum's offer. It was so open-handed that Alfred was, quote, moved to compassion, end quote. And so he made a counteroffer. He would take hostages from Guthrum's army, and 
Guthrum would indeed have to leave his kingdom. But Alfred also demanded that Guthrum convert to Christianity. And he added a further condition that Alfred himself would stand as godfather over Guthrum. Now these days, godparents are mostly a tradition that leads to extra presents at birthday parties. But this was serious business for Alfred. He was seeking divine protection for this pact. Also, as Guthrum had continually flaunted Christian and Anglo-Saxon norms, by forcing a conversion, Alfred was seeking to enforce those norms upon Guthrum. He was no longer willing to treat with Guthrum the pagan. Instead, Alfred wanted to come to terms with a fellow Christian. He wanted Guthrum to be baptized and be known as Athelstan. And Alfred wanted him to be bound to him as his own godson, which would have been seen as as strong, if not more strong, than a blood relationship. What Alfred was doing was throwing down some serious magic upon this deal, and the terms would have been made very clear to Guthrum if he didn't understand them already. And upon hearing Alfred's demands, Guthrum agreed to all of them. The war was over. Alfred had regained his kingdom. And this time, no one questioned his greatness. Least of all, Guthrum. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also join us on Twitter. We're at British Podcast. And you can join all our other communities at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening.